Please take your Bibles and turn to our focal passage for today's message, which is 1 John uh, chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 10. Now just uh, turn there and uh, hold your spot. We'll get to those verses in, in a minute, but I wanted you to go ahead and turn to them. Uh, let me first mention these verses are not often used as a text uh, for a Christmas message, uh, yet it is very appropriate to do so because in these verses, with as great a clarity as you will find anywhere in the Scripture, we discover the reason for Christmas. Now, before we read 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, listen to how John began another book of the Bible that he wrote, uh, the Gospel of John. And of course, this is a passage that uh, many of you are very familiar with. He opened that book by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And that is referring to Jesus. So, in the beginning, John says, was the Word, Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then in verse 14, we read, and the Word, Jesus, became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us as we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, as we come to 1 John chapter 3, John answers the question, why Jesus came to earth? Why the eternal Son of God left the very glories of heaven to come to the ghettos of this sin-cursed world in the form of a baby uh, to be born in Bethlehem's manger. So follow along as uh, we read these verses from 1 John 3, and I'll begin reading at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that He, referring to Jesus, you know that He, Jesus, appeared. That is a reference to His first advent when He appeared in that manger in Bethlehem. So He says, you know that He appeared, why? In order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared, again, another reference to that first advent, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one who is born of God practices sin because his, God's seed, abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. What is the reason for Christmas? Well, the passage we just read clearly states, Jesus appeared to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. Look again at verses 5 and 8. Verse 5, and you know that He appeared. Why? In order to take away sins. The latter half of verse 8, the Son of God appeared. Why? For this purpose, that He might destroy the works of the devil. So Christmas was God invading planet Earth on a search and destroy mission in in order to overthrow the devil's sinful hold on Earth's inhabitants and regain control. But instead of a D-Day type of invasion, with God leading a massive attack uh, backed by all the forces of heaven, God airdropped a little baby boy behind enemy lines. Not just any baby, but the Almighty Son of God, the Sovereign Lord, Creator of heaven and earth, who humbled Himself by entering a fertilized egg, supernaturally prepared by God, in the womb of a young virgin. He then grew in her womb for nine months to be born in Bethlehem's manger. The one who the writer of Hebrew tells us is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, who upholds all things by the word of His power, is wrapped in swaddling clothes and upheld in the arms of a first-time mother. Why did He come to earth on that first Christmas? To become our champion. The one who would take the battle to the devil to take away man's sins and destroy the works of the devil. You remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus at the outset of Christ's ministry, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God that what? takes away the sins of the world. And the book of Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, foretells us that though the devil would bruise his heel, a reference to the crucifixion, Jesus would what? Crush the serpent's head. Now, before we get into the sermon notes, and I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes, I want you to notice the simple flow and argument of 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. In verse 4 that we read, John states that the very essence of sin is, he says, lawlessness. He says, sin is lawlessness. Then in verse 5, he says, Jesus appeared to take away sins. And then in verse 6, he states his conclusion. No one who abides in him sins. Sin is lawlessness. 
Jesus appeared to take away sins, therefore no one who abides in Him can live in sin. Then, beginning at verse 8, John repeats his argument. But where John emphasized the lawless nature of sin in verse 4, in verse 8, he focuses on the origin of sin, which is the devil. He states in verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Then he concludes in verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. Now, let me just pause right here for a moment. I know this raises the question about sinless perfection, which John clearly repudiates in chapter 1. And we will address this seeming contradiction uh, later in the message. Right now, at this juncture in the sermon, I just want you to see just that very simple but powerful flow of John's argument, which again is this, sin, which is lawlessness, originated with the devil. Jesus came to this earth. He appeared to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, no one who is born of God can live in sin. Now, also in introduction, it's important to realize where these verses are found in the larger context of 1 John. These verses are found in a section that begins in verse 18 of chapter 2, and it runs all the way through chapter 3. And in this portion of 1 John, what the apostle is doing is contrasting true followers of Christ with false teachers who are leading people astray both theologically and morally. These false teachers taught that the inner soul of man is inherently good. And no matter what a person does with his body, it makes absolutely no difference because it cannot corrupt his basic goodness. And this led to a total indifference to sin. You could do as you please with your body. You could indulge any pleasure you desired because they taught it does not alter your basic goodness or your eternal destiny with God. This is not unlike the false teaching today that you can punch your ticket to heaven by professing faith in Jesus as your Savior without a corresponding change in lifestyle. I think of Christ's warning along these lines. In Matthew chapter 7, listen to verses 15 through 23. He says, beware of the false prophets, these false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them. How? By their fruits. He says, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree produces good fruit, but the bad tree produces produces a bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce a good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. And then he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in, who is in heaven will enter. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, never knew you. Depart from me, me, you who practice, you know what that next word is? Lawlessness. He says, don't be fooled. He says, in the life of a true believer, a true teacher, lawlessness has been broken. And Christ now reigns as Lord. Now, going back to 1 John, like Jesus, John is in this section debunking the thought that a person can be righteous without practicing righteousness. Righteousness. John states clearly in verse 10, and we read it, by this, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, with that foundation, I know it raises some questions. I want us to answer four questions that you see there in your notes. And the first question is, what is sin? And get this down in your notes. We'll try to keep it simple. What is sin? Rebellion. Rebellion against the right of God to make laws and govern His creatures. Sin is rebellion against the right of God to make laws and govern His creatures. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Notice, John says lawlessness is not the result of sin, but the very essence of sin, and this exposes the damning nature of sin. Sin is not just a flaw in our character. It's not just a failure. It is rebellion against God. A God we were created to love, to honor, to obey. Lawlessness says, God may demand it, but I will not submit to it. Lawlessness replaces God with our selfish desires as I become a law unto myself. Where did lawlessness originate? John tells us in verse 8, with the devil. And we know from the Scriptures that the devil was originally created an angel. His original name was Lucifer, meaning shining one. We know from the Scriptures that he was created the wisest, most powerful, and beautiful of all of God's created beings, and he was given charge over the angelic realm. He was delegated that authority by God. But tragically, he rebelled against God's authority, became a God unto himself whose one goal was to usurp God's throne. And ever since the devil's revolt against God, he's worked overtime, overtime to cultivate pride in the hearts of men and to put their desires above God and His laws. Sadly, all men, as the Bible tells us, are rebels, guilty of lawlessness. All have failed to give God the love, honor, and obedience due Him, and the penalty is what? Separation from God in hell for all eternity. And this leads us right to our second question. Well, why did Jesus come to earth? 
Well, we've already stated it, the reason Jesus appeared, the reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger was to destroy lawlessness and restore God to his rightful throne in the hearts of men. As the scripture says, Jesus came to set the captives free. And to succeed, he had to do the next two things that you see in your notes. First, he had to forgive men of sin's guilt. He had to forgive men of sin's guilt. 1 John 3, verse 5, and you know that he appeared to, in order to take away sins. The second thing he had to do was to free men from sin's power. Not only forgive men of sin's guilt, but he had to free men from sin's power. 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. For sinful men to be reconciled to a holy God, for God to take up residence in our hearts, in order for God to be with us, sin's guilt had to be removed and sin's power had to be broken. Salvation not only involves justification, being declared not guilty by God, but it also involves sanctification, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. The salvation that cleanses a person of sin's guilt frees him from sin's power. Now, this brings us to the third question. Well, how did Jesus accomplish that? How did Jesus forgive men of sin's guilt? How did he free us from sin's power? Well, notice first in your notes, he forgave men of their guilt through his substitutionary death on the cross. He forgave men through his substitutionary death on the cross. In 1 John 3, 5, again, we read, And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Circle that phrase, take away sins. That phrase, just circle it, take away sins. The words take away in the Greek text literally mean to permanently remove something to permanently remove something by lifting it up and just throwing it off. It is the same word found in John 1.29 that we alluded to earlier. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's interesting to note that the word forgive in the New Testament, in the Greek text that word is aphemai, and it literally means, that's what the, the word literally means, to send away, to remove, to dismiss, or to cancel out a debt. How did Jesus cancel out man's sin debt and remove our guilt before a holy God? There is only one way it could be done. Since it was man who rebelled against God. Since it was man who became guilty of lawlessness. Since it was man who was sentenced by God with the penalty of eternal separation from God. God's justice required that only another man could pay off man's sin debt and set men free. But it would require a perfect sinless man. 
who had no sin debt himself before God. A man who would be willing to pay the full penalty of death for mankind. Where would such a man be found since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Fallen short of the standard of a perfect sinless God. The answer? God became a man. God became a man. And this is why verse 5 emphasizes, and in him there's no sin. Praise God. Jesus not only had the ability to save man because he was sinless, but praise him, he was also willing to save man because he loved us. Look at those next series of verses there in your sermon notes, and let's just rejoice. Let's just praise Him in this truth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, Jesus, or, or He, God, made Him, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When Jesus died on that cross, your sins, the sins of humanity, were placed on Christ. He became in those moments what we are. He took our guilt. He experienced the full fury of God's justice and wrath against the sin of man as he died on that cross. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And what is that? Lawlessness. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, the lawlessness of all, to fall on him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Hebrews 9, 26. Jesus has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says it all. In this is love. Not that we loved God. We were rebels. We were lawless sinners. But God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in John 3, 16, for God so what? Loved. Loved the world. He loved you. And He gave His only begotten Son for you. That whosoever, even you, if you believe in Him, you should not perish, but have everlasting life. But Jesus not only forgave men from sin's guilt through His substitutionary death on the cross. Look at the next point in your notes. He freed men from sin's power through the new birth. He not only forgave us of sin's guilt by His death on the cross, but He freed us 
from sin's power through the new birth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, this is the time right now to take up the question of sinless perfection. What does John mean when he says no one born of God practices sin, that he cannot sin? Especially knowing that when you go back to chapter 1, this is what John says. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So how do we reconcile this seeming contradiction? Well, the key, the key is understanding the verb tenses that John uses in chapter 3. First, let's deal with chapter, with verse 6. In verse 6, he says, no one who abides in him, no one who abides in Christ sins. The verb sins is in the present tense, indicating a settled and ongoing lifestyle, like that of the devil, who we are told in verse 8, sinned from the very beginning. So when John says no one who abides in him sins, he's saying no one who abides in Christ has a settled and ongoing lifestyle of lawlessness, because that's been broken through salvation, as we're going to see. Now go to the statement in verse 9. He says, no one who is born of God practices sin. Again, the verb practices is in the present tense, which does not speak of an isolated act of sin, but the settled habit of sin. John is saying no one who's born of God will continue to practice sin as a dominant lifestyle. He can't continue to practice lawlessness because now Christ has regained control of his heart. In verse 9, he goes on to say that a Christian cannot sin. Now there, it is in the present infinitive, which that verb tense carries the thought of not being able to continue in sin. John could have used the aorist infinitive, which would have meant a believer is not able to commit a single sin, but in using the present infinitive, it means he is not able to sin habitually as a settled, ongoing lifestyle. Now, why, why is this true of a true believer? First of all, inherent in salvation is repentance and faith. A person must repent from sin. He must turn away from his lawlessness and submit to God's authority and place his faith in Christ alone for salvation. When that happens, God performs a miracle. Paul calls it a new creation. Jeremiah calls it a new heart. Ezekiel calls it a new spirit. John says in verse 9 that God's seed abides in him. Jesus said it this way, you must be born again. Notice the new birth. Notice what the new birth is. It is acquiring a new nature by the implantation of the seed of God's life. God's seed takes root in that believer's heart. 
It begins to grow. It begins to bear the fruit of Christ's likeness. This new life exerts strong internal pressure towards holiness. And in, in addition to all of that, God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to energize that new life He's given us, to empower that new life He's given us to live a life pleasing to God. We discover a growing hunger for God that creates a dissatisfaction with sin, not to mention a loving Father's discipline through external trials and adversities. So look at the key in your sermon notes. John is not arguing the impossibility of sin in the Christian life. John is not arguing the impossibility of sin in the Christian life, but that sin is incompatible with the change God has made. That's what he's arguing. It's not that it's impossible to be in a Christian's life, but if it's there, it's incompatible with the change God has made. Therefore, what is impossible is for a believer to be comfortable with sin and to persist in sin as an ongoing lifestyle. So John is arguing, or John is not arguing the impossibility of sin in the Christian's life, but that sin is incompatible with the change God has made. Therefore, what is impossible is for a believer any longer to be content in sin, to be comfortable in sin, and to persist in sin as an ongoing lifestyle. The Scripture is abundantly clear. Listen now. A believer will be tempted by sin. A believer is able to commit sin. I'll be the first one to raise my hand on that one. A believer is able to commit sin. He can even struggle. A believer can struggle with a sinful stronghold. And he can struggle with that sinful stronghold over a long period of time. But a believer can no longer be content or comfortable in that lifestyle. A believer in sin may come together in spiritual adultery, but they can no longer live together in harmony. The fact is, here's the fact, we will not reach our final state of perfection until we see Jesus face to face. Until then, and we all know this, it's the reality of our experience. There will be battles won with sin, and there'll be battles lost with sin. But for the believer, the outcome of the war is certain. And that's victory. That's victory because of God's grace and His life implanted in us, energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, and I Put this in your sermon notes. This is from the J.P. Phillips uh, translation. It's one of my favorite. Uh, he only translated the New Testament. It's a wonderful New, Te New Testament translation from the Greek uh, in contemporary language. And I love the way uh, he captures uh, this passage. He says, Yet, my brothers, I do not consider myself to have arrived. See, there's not a believer in this sanctuary this morning and say, Oh, I've arrived. So I do not consider myself to have arrived spiritually. I mean, Paul struggled with sin. He had his ups and downs. He had his failures, just like we have our failures. 
He says, nor do I consider myself already perfect. No, I'm not already perfect. But I keep going on, grasping ever more firmly that purpose for which Christ grasped me. You know, what's he acknowledged? He said, when I was converted, Jesus grasped me in his grace, in his love. He forgave me of sin's guilt. Through the new birth, he freed me of sin's power. I know his presence now. And with that presence, there's nothing too difficult for me to overcome. Yes, I struggle. Yes, I have my ups and downs. But I'm growing. I'm moving forward. And then he says, my brothers, I do not consider myself to have fully grasped it even now. But I do concentrate on this. I leave the past behind. Aren't you glad you can leave the sanctuary this morning and leave your past behind because of the blood of Jesus Christ? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, if you're a believer, bore the penalty of your sin. He, also, he already took the judgment for your sin. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can ever alter God's disposition of love towards you. It's a love that will never fail you, never let you go, but it's a love that's not going to let you off either. It's going to work with you, that will discipline you, that will push you, that will prod you, that will convict you. So I leave the past behind. And with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal. My reward, the honor of being called by God in Christ. So what is the reason for Christmas? Why did Jesus come to earth to destroy lawlessness and restore God to the throne of your heart? You have not experienced true Christmas until you have been forgiven of sin's guilt through faith in the substitutionary death of of Christ on the cross and until you've been freed from sin's power by experiencing the new birth. It's a package deal. Those he forgives of their guilt He frees from the power of sin. So the question is, have you experienced the reason for Christmas? And there may be persons here this morning, and you have never turned from going your own way. You've never acknowledged your lawlessness before God. And this morning, God is speaking to your heart, and God is convicting you. And he said, today is the day for your salvation. Today is the day for you to acknowledge your lawlessness, to turn from that lawlessness, to turn from going your own way, doing about faith, a face, and put your faith, put your confidence, put your trust in Jesus as you submit to him as Lord and Savior, to give Him the throne of your heart.
He that hath the Son hath life. Salvation is in Jesus. Jesus is Savior and Lord. You can't pick and choose what you like about Jesus. Oh, I like the Savior part. I like the forgiveness part. I like that ticket to heaven. But I don't like that. Talking about all that lawlessness and the need to repent from sin, to submit to God's authority. I want to do my own thing. I actually, I, I so appreciated this kid. I say kid, he was probably in his early 20s uh, that uh, some time ago I witnessed to and shared with him the plan of salvation. It was amazing his receptivity, his, his understanding, very similar to the uh, rich young ruler that Jesus dealt with uh, in, the, in the Gospels. But then this young man turned to me and he said, and he was running with the wrong crowd, he was, he was uh, dealing with drugs and a lot of other things were going on, immorality. He says, can, can I receive Jesus as my Savior to have the confidence I'm going to heaven but just continue to live the way I'm living? I said, no. Because it's repentance and faith. You have to turn from that lawlessness to submit to the authority of God as you placed your faith in Him. And at that moment, He refused to do so. But I ask you today to do so, to repent. Put your faith in Him, and as you do, you'll experience that wonderful new birth, that new creation, that new heart, that new spirit, God's seed being implanted in you, being born again. Someone will come into existence that never existed before as God invades your heart and life and changes you. Now, if you are a Christian here, and I know most of you are, I guess the question is, are you living consistent? with the reason for Christmas. You know, we, we acknowledge, it's not that a Christian uh, cannot sin, it's not that we cannot drift, it's not that we cannot stray, we do, I, I do, you do. And there are times like this, we need to be called back to that repentance, to that faith, uh, to uh, return to Jesus is our uh, first love. And to acknowledge that we have strayed, that we've drifted, and we're coming back uh, to know His power to break that stronghold of sin on our lives and to walk in a new way by His power and by His grace. So I, my prayer this morning is that every one of us uh, will uh, not only know the reason for Christmas, but will experience it as we rejoice in being forgiven of sin's guilt and as we rely on uh, uh, that new birth and that power of God within us uh, to free us uh, from sin's power. Bow with me in prayer. Father, uh, thank you for the, uh, the truth of the Scriptures. Thank you for the practicality of the Scriptures, for the balance of the Scriptures. Uh, Lord, help us always rightly divide your word and not fall into uh, extremes or uh, uh, false positions. Uh, but Lord, may we uh, just center on you and uh, your teaching. And Father, we've uh, seen very clearly today uh, the reason for Christmas. 
that it was an invasion, your invasion into this world uh, through a little baby. But that baby was your son, Jesus. And you sent him to forgive men of sin's guilt through his death on the cross. And you sent him to free men from sin's power uh, through the new birth. And we rejoice in that. We praise you in that. That as we come to you, lawlessness is broken as you assume the throne in our hearts and as we know your power at work in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. And Lord, we acknowledge very readily, like Paul, we haven't arrived. We haven't arrived spiritually. We're not yet perfect. We're still struggling to avail ourselves, to appropriate ourselves of all that you've given us. And and it is a process uh, to learn your truth, to learn all that you've made available to us, and to learn by faith how to appropriate that in in, in real life, uh, to know victory, to be able to uh, overcome sinful attitudes and uh, conduct, and uh, and to see uh, our character slowly changed by that seed that you've planted in us uh, into the likeness of Christ. So, Lord, uh, meet us in our weakness uh, to let your strength be perfected. Uh, for it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. As the invitation is extended today, if you're one of those that, uh, yes, I want to turn away from my lawlessness to submit to Jesus and place my faith in Him, uh, I would invite you just to make your way down the aisle uh, so I can just share that with the church so we can pray for you and that we can begin to aid you uh, in your newfound faith and in your growth. Uh, if you're a believer, I trust... Uh, Right there at your pew as this hymn is being sung, uh, you'll have a time of reflection, a a time alone with God uh, there in your heart. And if there's a need, uh, you've realized today, I I have drifted. Uh, I have forgotten what I have in Jesus. I have been failing to appropriate that. I have been living inconsistent with the change God made in my life. And, And this morning, you need to say, God, I acknowledge that. And I turn from that, and I return to you as my first love. And Lord, give me grace as you gave Paul the grace now to begin to move forward, leave the past behind, and to press uh, forward. So uh, please stand as the invitation extended, and you just be obedient.